Greetings, church. Greetings, body of Christ. Greetings, beloved of the Father. I'm Wally Schilling, and I'm one of the teaching pastors at Faith Fellowship, and I'm so glad to be with you uh, today. And uh, I'm so excited that that last song talked all about grace, because one of the things I'm doing among in the midst of the teaching is I'm providing you with a reading list that I've become very impassioned about over the summer. And one of the books is called The Grace Message. It's by Andrew Farley. You can get the book or you can just listen to it on um, you know, Audible or whatever your favorite Audible thing is. And uh, it's just a powerful re-emphasis of the importance, the foundational truth that grace is what it's all about. We're, we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is, is the clutch that connects us to grace, which is the engine. And uh, so I just want to encourage you, if you want a nice challenge and a review of grace, read uh, The Grace Message by Andrew Farley. This summer, we've been doing a Walking with Pete sermon series, and I'm continuing it this morning. We've covered walking in hope, in harmony, under authority, at work, and at home with uh, husbands and wives, the sermon that Jeff did uh, last week. And today we're going to be talking about walking with Pete as the church. That's his emphasis now. Uh, we might, use, might expect the usual references to the body of Christ, finding your gifts, serving with the church, faithfulness and stewardship. But that's not the way Pete approaches it. That's kind of more of a Paul approach. Um, we're going to be looking at how Peter approaches it. He's preparing his readers for the coming of trials. They were already going through trials. He's talked about it earlier in the book, and he sees more trials looming up ahead. In the first two chapters, Peter referred to uh, all kinds of trials, of, of uh, accusations of believers doing the wrong thing when actually they were doing the right things, uh, ignorant and foolish talk of people, men, women, the pain of unjust suffering, a whole bunch of cultural things that were coming against the church in the communities that they lived in. And so he's wanting to speak to them about that. And these persecutions were a reaction of the pagan society of the first century Christians, first century people against the faithful and obedient Christians. Did you know that the word atheist actually was used against the Christians? It's because A means not and theist means a, a, a god. The Christians believed and the Jews believed in one God. They didn't believe in the pantheon of all the gods. So they were atheists in the mindset and the worldview of the culture around them. And they wouldn't, didn't want you to worship idols. So it became a clash between the people that they lived among. Peter then warned that a time of more severe persecution and suffering was coming, was close at hand. And he encouraged them to keep their consciences clear while facing Injustice. We're called to endure such inevitable suffering with Christ like courage, is what Peter says. We'll see that we are to respond to our culture uh, as the church, the ecclesia. It's a, it's a Greek word, ecclesia, means to be called out. Now we know that word ecclesia as ecclesiastical, usually meaning to have something to do with religious stuff, but it originally just meant the called out group from the sea of humanity in a particular place, in a particular culture, who came to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. They were the ecclesia, the called out group. And he says, I want you all as the church to have certain kind of behaviors 
as we live in the culture around us so that can, we can win more people to the gospel. We represent Christ in the world. He is the head and we are the body. And Peter wants us to maintain certain attitudes towards one another in the church in the process as kind of a prep ground for then how we behave towards people in the world who are non-Christians and who may even be hostile to us. So the passage of scripture for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Let's stand together as uh, I read it and let's uh, hear the word of God. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would fill our hearts and minds and my mouth, and that we would hear your word speaking to us, and we would be encouraged and lifted up and emboldened to uh, live your life in us into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. He begins this section with the word finally. It's the Greek word tautelos, which is a teleological, means the end or the goal. Football, the goal post, the goal line is the telos, the end. That's where you want to get the ball across. And it's not really so much a summary. He's, he's talked about a whole bunch of stuff, but he's not going to go and then re-summarize everything. He's saying, I have a final point, a goal that I'm getting at, and now I'm speaking to all of you. So he says, finally, all of you, I want to say something to you. And that's what he's doing. He's addressed leaders, slaves, masters, husbands, and wives. And now he turns to the people in his church in the day, the, the churches he was writing to. It wasn't just one. The letter went out to many. But he's also speaking to us because we're also the aliens and strangers scattered in the world, just like the ones he was writing to back then. It includes all of us here today. But it goes further. How do we live and behave in a hostile culture around us? I mentioned the first century was hostile to the believers, and there is now increased hostility to Christianity right now in general. It, it ebbs and flows in cultures and around the world in different places. But I'm sure you felt it. There's the cancer culture. There's the Facebook rants. Anybody had your Facebook account canceled yet? I mean, you know, sometimes if you get too verbal out there, you can have somebody decide they don't like what you say. There's legal persecution. They even have a term for it. They call it lawfare, using law to fight things in the whole legal and political realm. So we, got, we have a lot of stuff happening in our culture as well, and we might call this uh, a sermon a practical guide for living in a hostile culture. It seems we need such guidance more and more these days. It's, it can be rough. So let's jump into what Peter has to say to us. 
He talks about five inward pursuits and five outward pursuits. We might say there are five inward character qualities that we want to develop so that we will have five outward behaviors towards those in the body, but also out in the world. So five and five, five inward and five outward. And those are the two pieces of bread for the sandwich of the sermon today. And in the middle, there's some meat I'm going to talk about that's a little different, but it's, I think it's a context for what we're talking about. It's called worldviews. So first, the first of the inward attitudes is all of you, unity of mind. The Greek word is homophron. Homo meaning, meaning same and fron meaning mind. But it's interesting, in the world back then, fron actually meant the midriff. The guts, because the seat of both intellectual capacity and emotions was seen as being in the bowels. King James talks about bowels of compassion. We'll mention that in a second. But here, homophrone means being of the same intellectual attitude in this particular case. So be like-minded, be in harmony with your brothers and sisters. The second one is sympathy. And this one is with passion. It, it doesn't say the word midriff this time, but it says the same suffering. And now the emphasis is not on the mind, but it's on the emotions, the seed of emotions. So really he's kind of saying, be like-minded and be like-hearted. He wants us to be empathetic with those of us that we're engaging with. Feel their pain, get into their shoes, a sense of empathy. The third attitude is brotherly love. He uses the word Philadelphos in Greek, where we get the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It was named for that. Philos is the word for that, and Delphos the word for brother. But it doesn't just mean between brothers and men, not daughters and women, because it's a metaphor for all members of the family. Sisters and brothers, siblings, who have the same heavenly father. We're part of that same family. And there's a certain way the family of God is supposed to behave. And it's a good way. It's a loving way. It's a kind way. And it's a connection we have with one another that's different with an associate or a stranger. We are all adopted into God's family legally. But we also are not only legally adopted into God's family when we come to Christ, but we are also born into that family through the spirit. So there's kind of an organic connection through the spirit being in the body. So we're his body. That's why the Lord, when he knocked Paul off his horse, said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting Jesus because Paul was going after his body, the people. There's an organic connection there. Brotherly, sisterly love. Fourth, a tender heart, sensitive to others' needs. This is a Greek word I love because my major in college was German, and German is a sehr sprache that you know you got to watch out on the first row. You know you might get some overflow. You know, well the Greek word is usplagnos. If I pronounce it a little Germanly, usplagnos, and you is the word in Greek for good. And splognos is bowels again, another kind of word for splow. I think it even kind of gets to the word spleen, splognos. He wants us to have bowels of compassion. And this one tends to mean a really tender, sensitive heart. Like when you have gas pains, you know, and you go, mm, no, it's like, mm, 
no, you can be really tender. Just a second, it's going to pass. Whew. He wants you to have those bowels of mercy for one another. He wants you to care. He wants you to have tender heart. It's love under pressure. It's a gut feeling love, and that's how he wants us to behave. Number five of the five, a humble mind. Now, it's interesting. This one is philophron. Remember, the first one was homophron, same mind. This is philophron, and the lectionary says that that really means a friendly mind. He wants us to have be like-minded, and he wants us to be friendly-minded with one another. And they use the word, it's translated in a lot of places, humble, but it really means courteous. Now, that's why it's connected to humble. It means you're willing to listen to the other, you're willing to yield, and uh, you're swift to hear and slow to speak. So these five character qualities or virtues that Peter uses describes how members of the church are supposed to treat one another. An intentional, emotional, and mental choice to care for one another with tenderheartedness, humility, and courtesy. Notice he, he doesn't mention the, quote, fruit of the Spirit in, from, from Galatians. Because this is Peter, not Paul. But it's really the same concept. It's the same spirit. He's just approaching it in a different way, which gives us a real vibrant picture of what we're supposed to be like. The fruit of the Spirit still completely apply. But he's using different words to get to it. So how do we apply them? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. He has an answer, and we're calling them the five outward pursuits. Five ways of behaving or responding as individuals as the church, in the church, in our relationships with one another. But we want to see it as a training ground for how we relate to people out in the world when we have more harsh treatment, perhaps. But before we go there, I mentioned the sandwich, the five inward qualities and the five outward qualities. They were going to look at something called worldviews. We're going to be looking at something that is a excursion of a topic. As I said, I've been reading some books during the summer, but it harkens back to something a long time ago, which I'll explain. Because I think this little bit of a interlude in worldviews will help us understand our culture better, and uh, it'll help us how to react and get in the shoes of the people around us, even those who may be hostile to Christianity. And I'm hoping it'll create a context for the five outward behaviors. So the topic of worldviews, you see this camera lens. A worldview is uh, exactly what it's called. It's a way to view the world. Uh, a worldview is a, is a thought-out framework studied and reflected on how people think. It helps us to understand people and culture. It helps us to know how to lead people to Christ because we understand where they're coming from better. Now, everyone has a worldview, even if they don't think they do. They just not, may not have really thought about it. They just kind of, it just, they eat, drink, and breathe it. They just haven't really identified it. Some are more aware of their worldviews. You may be more aware. You may have studied it because it's become a big field of study over the years in Christian circles and secular circles, too. Here's how I got started. I want to just tell a little bit of my story. When I went to college, University of Wisconsin, I started out as an electrical engineer, and I did three semesters of all the pre-science stuff, and I loved science and math and all that kind of stuff, and quarks and all those things, you know. I love reading about it. Still, 
But my, I had become a Christian my freshman year in high school, and I really kind of now decided I wanted to go into more of a broad liberal arts education, possibly to go to seminary, which ultimately is what I did. So my junior year, I decided to shift from electrical engineering to a major in German and philosophy. Now, that's quite a jump. However, I had always been asking questions and reading books of C.S. Lewis and all this kind of stuff and different things. And so I was very interested in questions and answers. And I took four years of German in high school. So guess what? I was already prepared to go to the next level courses at college. So I started my German, and then I decided my junior year to actually go to Germany and spend the entire year in college at the University of Freiburg in Breisgau, Germany. Uh, it was in the Black Forest. It was a wonderful place. I was dating a girl at the time. Her name was Labusa Brabnerschmidt. <laughs> and uh, her mother, Daniela, was actually considered quite the intellectual and she was a war bride from Germany, and um, she gave me a book, knowing I was going to Germany. She gave me a book by an author I'd never heard of called Francis Schaeffer. How many have heard that name, Francis Schaeffer? He had a community called the Brie in Waymo, Switzerland, and it had become a, com a community in the late 60s, early 70s, where the hippies and the druggies and all sorts of people with questions came to ask, get their questions answered and discuss things. And he had a real knack for understanding people and talking on their level and answering questions. So I was armed with this book. I get to, to uh, Freiburg and I come into the office. There's 60 students and I meet this one woman there, young woman who's one of our students. And she greets me and we talk and find out she's a Christian. And she says, oh, by the way, have you heard of Labrie? Well, as a matter of fact, I have. She said, well, Dan and I just went there last weekend. You're kidding. I wanted to go there too. Why didn't you wait for me? You know? Long story short, within a couple of weeks, uh, two, uh, several others have went to Labrie. And while I was there, I was blown away with the community, with the answers to questions. And now I decided to finally actually start reading my book. <laughs> I hadn't started it yet, Escape from Reason. So that's kind of how I got into it. And it has helped me so much because it helped me organize my thinking in philosophy and Christianity. And it really got me through part of my double major of German and philosophy at college. And what helped me was it gave me a framework to realize that Christianity, Judeo-Christianity, is and has a worldview. And that worldview is a unified worldview that God created everything. He's not part of creation. He's out separate from creation. Now, that's a view of the world and a view of reality. He exists, uh, and he created everything else. Schaefer wrote a book called He is There, <clears throat> and He's Not Silent, meaning he's there, and he has spoken in his word. That's a, that's a huge worldview, and it's called the Judeo-Christian worldview. If you have a different worldview... And there's lots of worldviews out there. But if I have a worldview that gravity doesn't exist, and I just, you know, just, I just know gravity does I believe that. But if I step off a uh, one-story building, two-story building, whatever, or if I try to do a selfie up on a rock, guess what's going to happen? And I slip. Gravity exists. And there's going to be consequences. To the degree that a worldview doesn't really match reality, there are going to be rude awakenings and problems. And that's the strength of a worldview because it helps us identify 
where there's those inconsistencies. So the author I'm recommending that's also on your sheet is a woman named Nancy Piercy. There's four books I've recommended. And she met the Lord at Libri as well. I, I've never met her, but recently I've come across her books. And uh, she not only went there and met the Lord, but she studied worldviews and she actually got a PhD in it. She actually helped Charles Colson write the book, How Now Shall We Then Live? She was a young student and helped her, him in writing it. So you can look at the notes page to see those details. So I've chosen to read a small section from her introduction of the book, Love Thy Body. In this book, she's talking about the worldviews that help us understand what's going on in culture with abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, sex transgender stuff, transgender things. So it organizes it for us and helps us understand it all. Because it all comes from the same what? world view. So here's, here's Nancy. It's an extensive passage, so just hang in with me. The problem is that many people treat morality as a list of rules, but in reality, every moral system rests on a worldview. In every decision we make, we are not just dealing with what we want to do, we are expressing our view of the purpose of human life. <clears throat> to be strategically effective, we must address what people believe about the nature and significance of life itself. We must engage their worldview. C.S. Lewis put it this way. <clears throat> the Christian and the materialist hold two different beliefs about the universe, about ultimate reality. They can't both be right, says C.S. Lewis. The one who is wrong will act in a way that simply, simply doesn't fit the real universe. Think the gravity illustration. Here's another one. A guy named John Cage. I love this illustration. It's one of Schaefer's books. John Cage was a concert pianist in the late 60s, early 70s. But he also had a worldview that believed that there was no God and there was no meaning or purpose in the universe. So he wanted to live out his worldview. So what he switched to from doing concerts where he had been trained classically he would come into a concert and intentionally untune the piano. And then he would play the concert, and it was horrible. It was a cacophony. People would yell. People would walk out. But he was bold. He continued to do it. He'd come in with a stopwatch, sit down at the keyboard of a tuned piano, and sit there for 90 minutes and not play a thing. Why? Because silence is just as beautiful and meaning meaningful as an actual Bach concerto, because it's all just meaninglessness. So that's how he tried to live out his worldview. But Schaefer points out there was a certain place where he was inconsistent. John Cage loved wild mushrooms. Guess what? He didn't pick his wild mushrooms in the same way he did his concerts. He was very careful to pick the ones that were not poisonous. Because the real world is different than his mental framework of the world. So he was inconsistent. And, and, and Schaefer points out that that's the way we engage people when they have worldviews that take us in a different way. Nancy continues, my goal in Love Thy Body is to show that a secular morality doesn't fit the real universe. True for me, but not true for you. The first step is to recognize that the secular morality rests on a deep division that runs through all of Western thought and culture. One that blows apart the connection between scientific and moral knowledge. 
In the past, most civilizations held that reality consists of both a natural order and a moral order integrated into the overall unity. Therefore, our knowledge of reality was likewise thought to be a single unified system of truth, which is what the Judeo-Christian worldview is. That's why God is there, and he's not silent, he's spoken. In the modern era, however, many people came to think that reliable knowledge is possible only in the natural order of empirical, testable, scientific facts. What does that imply for moral truths, values, that kind of thing? They cannot be stuffed into a test tube or studied under a microscope. Many people concluded that morality does not qualify as objective truth. It consists of merely personal feelings and preferences. The unified concept of truth has been exploded, split into two separate domains, a lower story and an upper story. It's called the fact-value split, privately engaged in and publicly irrelevant. Theologian Francis Schaeffer illustrated this division using the metaphor of two stories in a building. In the lower story is empirical science, which is held to be objectively true and testable. Can you put the picture of the house up again, please? A two-story view. Facts and science, measurable things are on the first story, and values and personhood are on the upper story. In the lower story, it's testable, and it is, and it is the realm of public things that everyone is expected to accept, regardless of their private beliefs. Think Trust the science. Trust the science. Until you find out that the science can be manipulated. And so we have to look at why that is happening. In the upper story is the realm of morality and theology, which are treated as private, subjective, and relative. This is where we hear people say, that is true for you, but not for me. It's this fact-value split. It's why in... Um, uh, so many situations, the stuff that is personal is said, you just got to keep that to yourself. Don't bring it out into the public square. Do you see the parallels of the two-story model in this fact-value split? Values in the upper story, they are private and subjective, and the lower story are facts, public, objective, and valid for everyone. And she describes this in her book, Total Truth. So she has several books about it. So she's describing here, in this initial idea of the fact-value split, she's describing what is really called the modern modernism. It's a philosophical worldview. And it's been going on for over 100 years. Ever since Darwin, ever since the scientists in the White Coast, it's been modernism. Science is, is where everything can be actually measured and tested. That's why I liked science when I went to Wisconsin. But... She points out that another worldview has been merging in the past decades, and it's called postmodernism. And what they've done is they've flipped this house on its head. Or what I really should say is, instead of the lower story being true and the upper story subjective, they've switched it around and said, we can't even trust science anymore. Look what they do. They can manipulate science. How do we know it's really measured correctly? And so they basically distrust science but then they decide to put the value of what we trust on feelings and values and personhood. Hence, someone can say, I am a woman trapped in a male body. 
That saying, my body is not giving me any clues on who I am because that's the lower story now that we now don't trust in postmodernism. And if I say I'm a woman, then I'm a woman. If I say I'm a bicycle, then I'm a bicycle. If I'm saying a pup, I'm a puppy and I want to walk around with fur and ears and a tail, then that's what I am. Now, it might seem crazy, but if you understand that the, there is a worldview that is causing that, and it's a worldview is created by individuals who then work to, I mean, they together in, in college and in, in society, we kind of imbibe this stuff, and it seems like, you know, that's who I am. And the legal works, the legal courts now are trying to defend that, but the only way you can keep defending it is by authoritarian control, forcing us to allow a male gendered body who says they're a woman to be able to go into a woman's restroom. You do that because if they say they're a woman, then they are a woman. All the evidence from science in the lower story that we now don't trust to the contrary. See how that works? And if you can wrap your mind around some of these worldview things, it will help tremendously. Remember Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am? It's been turned on his head. I think, I am this, therefore I am that. It's a different kind of thinking and it's now a different kind of worldview. So I recommend her books. They're on the sheet. Please uh, take a look at them and uh, I, hope, I hope they'll be helpful to you and uh, give you a, a, a grasp. If it whets your appetite, please enjoy. So this gives us a context, I'm hoping, for when we go out into the world with these character qualities that Peter talks about, that then we can understand that as we live in a potentially hostile culture and interact, we can have an attitude that is gracious, that is kind, that is tender-hearted, recognizing that they're coming from a place that actually divides them against themselves, that divides their body from their personhood. And, and the gravity illustration, the John Cage illustration, you can help them understand who they really are as you engage them. So here's what Peter says about the five outward pursuits. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Evil for evil. The Greek word is kakos. And you probably used that Greek word and didn't know it. I know it uh, kind of happens around our house when we say to our kids, kids or grandkids, that's caca, don't touch that, you know, don't touch that, that's caca. It means worthless, literally, but it also by, it means bad, or it can even mean evil. There's a town in Cyprus that I visited in 1980 when I was there, it's called Caca Petra. That's bad Peter, no, bad rock, Petra. Caca Petra, why do you ask, is it called Caca Petra? Because in the founding of the country, there were families in the area and there was a couple that got married. And to celebrate, they danced around this big rock that was up on the mountain. One of those rocks, you know, where everything's eroded underneath, but the rock's still there. Well, the legend has it that the rock fell on them during all the dancing and killed them. So they called it a cockapetra. Remember what happened at that wedding? That cockapetra, that bad rock? That became the name of the town. It's a big, bustling town. Cockapetra. Don't return evil for evil, bad things for bad things. 
Don't return reviling for reviling. It's also translated insult, but it means slander. It means abusive language. It means a string of profanity. It means sarcastic remarks. Someone throws bad things at you or bad words at you. He wants us to respond in a different way. Don't return evil for evil. Remember the phrase eye for an eye in the Old Testament? A lot of people think that that means, well, by golly, if they punch out my son's eye, I'm going to go punch out their son's eye. But that's not really what it meant. The problem is human nature is so evil that somebody punches out a son's eye and then the family and brothers will go and wipe out the entire family. Eye for an eye meant reduce the violence, respond in a more equal way if you're going to respond. You can also forgive. Uh, you can love your neighbor as yourself, but don't. You've seen it in the TV. You know, someone gets punched and then they're, they're vicious. They're kicking. They're, they're trying to hurt the person. We want to reduce that. But then God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus takes it even to another level. Love one another as I have loved you. How do you love us? He laid down his life for us. In Peter 2.23, it says, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. This is the basis of what Peter's talking about. When he suffered, he had no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Yeah, it may be unjust to you, but can you love back? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or maybe they even know what they do, but can you forgive them? So what do we do instead? He says, don't return evil for evil, insult for insult. insult. But what do we do instead? Bless. Exactly. Bless. Bless. And bless means extend grace, mercy, all the qualities that we talked about at the beginning. Another way of saying it is repay, so to speak, with a blessing, with being kind, with not speaking back in the same way. YWAM used to have a phrase called respond in the opposite spirit. YWAM is youth with a mission. And why do we bless? Because we were called to inherit or obtain a blessing. And this is a very interesting phrase because it harkens all the way back to Abram who said, who, to whom God said, follow me and I will make a great nation. I will bless you and make a great nation out of you. Through your seed, all nations will be what? Blessed. It's God's way of saying his, all his goodness, his grace is going to come upon all those who become sons of Abraham by virtue of accepting Jesus Christ, who is the seed that brings us a righteousness from heaven, a grace from heaven. Galatians 3.14 says, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And it's interesting because the Spirit promises it to Abram, it comes to us when we accept Jesus, when we accept Jesus, which is a fulfillment of the promise of the Spirit given to Abraham. At the same time, what does Jesus do? He says, he gives us the promise of the Father, which is the Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost. It's so amazingly beautiful, all tied up in the word blessing. We are to bless. We are to bless. How do you inherit it? Someone has to die. Who is it that died so that we can inherit that blessing? Of course, Jesus, who died on the cross. 
Consequently, we're blessed. And because we're blessed, we can forgive those that hurt us. We can extend grace to those who hurt us. And the whole book of the grace message by Farley talks about that living in the flow of grace. Allowing that grace to just exude from us. Paul in Romans says, this is what counts. Not circumcision or uncircumcision, but the new creation. In other places, this is what counts. Faith expressing itself in love. That's what we're to be with one another and in our culture. And then he says, using the Old Testament, he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is the third behavior. If you want to see, and he's using the Psalms, if you want to see, if you love life and you want to see good days, Kathy Tom said there's a children's song. Keep your tongue from speaking evil and, and do good, you know. She was telling me about a children. We have to keep our tongue from speaking evil and lies. Watch out what you do with your tongue and maybe you'll actually see longer days. Turn away, number four, turn away from evil and do good. Let him turn away, away from evil. It's basically repentance. It's basically turning to Christ and, and not doing the evil things that maybe we had bad behavior. Instead, we are to not respond with a string of profanity, not respond with a cynical, snarky attitude, but rather repent from doing evil and exhibit what Christ would want. Maybe it's just being silent and being peaceful and not responding. Lastly, he says, seek peace and pursue it because he is our peace and he has broken down every wall. The problem is in relationships, peace can often be elusive. I bet you here there are families that have family members in which a peaceful relationship isn't exactly what's going on right now. There may be estrangement with a son or daughter. There may be a stepson or daughter that things aren't going well. There may be an ex-wife or an ex-husband that things aren't going well and it's not working well with the kids. Peaceful relationships are hard. But God wants to empower us to try to be graceful in those kind of situations. Not allow ourselves to be doormats or to be abused, but to try and, as far as it depends on us, be at peace with everyone. And then, as after those, those are the five outward things he wants us to keep as we're behaving. But then he goes on, he, he sums it up by talking about um, why we should do this. And he gives three things, the eyes, the ears, and the face of the Lord. And we'll wrap this up. He says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. It means his providential care. He's watching us with his eye. There's a place he says he does that. He doesn't put a bridle in our mouth to pull us around, but he watches us with his eye. Now, the other day, and I got to really be careful what I say about this because my daughter Kelly is down here and I was watching her son Bo at our house by myself. We were in the swimming pool playing. And, and, and I was there, that, yeah, it was just me and Bo. And Bo was thirsty, and I was thirsty. Maybe it was just me that was thirsty, I'm not sure. But I wanted to go in the house and get something for us to drink and nibble on. So I left Bo in the hot tub, and I walked in the house. But you know what I did while I left Bo in the hot tub? My eye was always on him. 
as I went in, we have a lot of windows, and I'm, I'm going, tripping over the chair a little bit, you know, because I don't want to let my eye go away from Bo. He's a good swimmer, but I didn't want him to slip, bump his head on the side of the hot tub, you know, and be, go under. Let's see, how long is he under? He holds his breath pretty well, but how long is he? No, I kept my eye upon him. And then I came back out, and things were fine. But that's, that's kind of a vision, you see, of we do it as parents, grandparents, but that's what God does. He keeps his eye upon us just to make sure things are going okay. And if something's gone, oh, we swoop in. Then he says, his ear is open to their prayer. The Lord is listening. If, we want to, if we're in a real difficult situation with somebody and it's going back and forth, we can pray and talk to him. And Lord, help me in this relationship with this person. They're being so hostile toward me. How many of you as parents or grandparents know that if you're in a crowded room with lots of kids, cacophony, noise everywhere, but if your kid cries out, mom, or if your kid starts crying, you know their sound. In the midst of all that, you know, it's a zoom. Okay, what's going on over there, you know? And we know because we hear it. And the Lord hears us when we cry to him. That's, it's, he's, he's appealing to that metaphor. Those two things are positive, the eye of the Lord and the ear of the Lord. But the next one is, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And I've seen Kelly do this. Now, evil is in quotes. But I've seen Kelly do this, and I've done this. Kathy's done this. We've all done this with our kids. After the ear, after the eye thing, if we see some injustice going on between the kids, and Bo is screaming to no end, but we find we could see that the older sister was poking him and egging him on and making him mad. Well, what happens then? Then it's not Bo's fault. You know, we go up to Izzy and we say, Izzy, look me in the face. You know, she's looking the other way. Look me in the face. Face to face here, Izzy. You know, you do not do that with your brother Bo. He's four years old. Be kind to him. Don't, you know, annoy him. And truth be told, Bo can annoy her too, so you have to. But the issue is, we get, in, we get in someone's face when we really want to confront. And the Lord gets in the face of those who do evil. But the goal is he wants us to repent. We want them to change their behavior. Mom, would you tell him to quit, quit hitting my uh, elbow with his eye? You know, people can get it all mixed around, and we have to get in their face. So... Peter winds this up, quoting from the Old Testament. The eye of the Lord is on us. The ear is attentive. And, and turn away from evil because otherwise you'll get in the Lord's face. The Lord will get in your face. So we've seen the five qualities that Peter is talking about. We've looked at worldviews as a context for understanding all this. And now we have five behaviors that he wants us to maintain as we interact with one another and we interact with the world. I'd like us to stand and let us sing the, I'd like us to sing the um, doxology together. And um, Michael's going to lead us. Sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures
us to sing it one more time, remembering that that first line, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Think of that as we engage one another and we engage people in the world, that from God, all best blessings can flow into us and through us to those around. Let's sing it again. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly. your eyes and hold your hands out in front of you. I'd like you to imagine, it might not be hard, who in your sphere of relationships are things not quite at peace? You have a family member, son, daughter, parent, stepchild, stepparent, but things just aren't quite right. In your heart of hearts, just name them, just hold them up before the Lord and ask the Lord to pour out his blessing upon you and through you to those persons. There's someone at work that are, you, you guys are just striving with each other. Might be your boss, might be a co-worker, might be someone just in your neighborhood, a neighbor that just irritates Lift them up to the Lord. Say, Lord, give me these qualities that Peter talks about so that I can behave towards them with blessing, with blessing, with grace, with tenderheartedness. Enable me to be the example, Lord, of you in these relationships, Lord. I give these people to you I give my bad attitudes and bad responses that I may have had up to this point. Thank you that you've paid for those things on the cross already. Give me grace. Give me love. Change the situation, Lord. May it be to your glory that it changes. Bless, Lord. I be a blessing because you've blessed me. In Jesus' name, amen.